Images like this from the Auschwitz concentration camp have uh, been seared into our consciousness during the 20th century and have given us a new understanding of who we are, where we've come from, and the times we live in. During the 20th century, uh, we witnessed the atrocities of Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot, Rwanda, uh, and other genocides. And even though the 21st century is only seven years old, we have already witnessed a, an ongoing genocide in Darfur and the daily horrors of Iraq. This has led to a common understanding of our situation, namely that modernity has brought us terrible violence and perhaps that native peoples lived in a state of harmony that we have departed from uh, to our peril. Here's an example from a, an op-ed on Thanksgiving in the Boston Globe a couple of years ago where the writer wrote, uh, the Indian life was a difficult one, but there was no employment problems, community harmony was strong, substance abuse unknown, crime nearly non-existent, what warfare there was between tribes was largely ritualistic and seldom resulted in indiscriminate or wholesale slaughter. Now you're all familiar with this uh, uh, treacle, we uh, teach it to our children, uh, we hear it on uh, television and storybooks. Now, the original title of this session was Everything You Know is Wrong, and I'm going to present evidence that this particular part of our common understanding is wrong. That in fact, our ancestors were far more violent than we are, that violence has been in decline for long stretches of time, and that today we are probably living in the most peaceful time in our species' existence. Now, in the decade of Darfur and Iraq, a statement like that might seem somewhere between hallucinatory and uh, obscene, but I'm going to try to convince you that uh, that, that is the, the uh, correct uh, picture. The decline of violence is a fractal phenomenon. You can see it over millennia, over centuries, over decades, and over years. Although there seems to have been a tipping point at the onset of the age of reason in the 16th century. One sees it all over the world, although not homogeneously. Uh, it's especially evident in the West, beginning with England and Holland uh, around the time of the Enlightenment. Let me um, take you on a journey from uh, several powers of 10 from the millennium scale to the year scale to try to persuade you of this. Until 10,000 years ago, all humans lived as hunter-gatherers without permanent settlements or uh, government. And this is the state that's commonly thought to be one of uh, primordial harmony. But the archaeologist um, Lawrence Keeley, looking at uh, casualty rates among contemporary hunter-gatherers, uh, namely, which is our best source of evidence about this way of life, has shown a rather different conclusion. Here's a graph that he uh, put together showing the percentage of male deaths due to warfare in a number of foraging or hunting and gathering societies. The red bars correspond to the uh, likelihood that a man will die at the hands of another man as opposed to passing away of natural causes in a variety of foraging societies in the New Guinea highlands and the Amazon rainforest. And they range from a rate of almost a 60% chance that a man will die at the hands of another man to, in the case of the Gabuski, only a 15% uh, chance. The tiny little blue bar in the lower left-hand corner plots the corresponding statistic from the United States and Europe in the 20th century, and it includes all the deaths of both world wars. If the death rate in tribal warfare uh, had prevailed during the 20th century, there would have been 2 billion deaths rather than 100 million. 
Uh, also on the millennium scale, we can look at the way of life of early civilizations, such as the ones described in the Bible. And in this uh, supposed source of our moral values, one can read descriptions of what was expected in warfare, such as the following from Numbers 31. And they warred against the Midianites as the Lord commanded Moses, and they slew all the males. And Moses said unto them, Have you saved all the women alive? Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman that hath known man by lying with him. But all the women children that have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. In other words, kill the men, uh, kill the, uh, the uh, children. If you see any virgins, then you can keep them alive so that you can rape them. And you can find four or five passages in the Bible uh, of, of this ilk. Also in the Bible, one sees that the death penalty was the uh, accepted punishment for crimes such as homosexuality, adultery, blasphemy, idolatry, talking back to your parents, and picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Well, let's uh, click the zoom lens down one order of magnitude and look at the century scale. Now, uh, although we don't have statistics for warfare throughout the Middle Ages to modern times, we know just from conventional history that there, the evidence was under our nose all along that there has been re a reduction in socially sanctioned forms of violence. For example, any uh, social history will reveal that mutilation and torture were routine forms of criminal punishment. The kind of infraction today that would give you a fine in those days would uh, result in your uh, tongue being cut out, your ears being cut off, you being blinded, a hand being chopped off, and so on. There were uh, numerous ingenious forms of sadistic capital punishment, burning at the stake, disemboweling, breaking on the wheel, being pulled apart by horses, and so on. The death penalty was uh, sanctioned for a long list of nonviolent crimes, criticizing the king, stealing a loaf of bread. Slavery, of course, was the preferred labor-saving device, and cruelty was a popular form of entertainment. Perhaps the most vivid example was the practice of cat burning, in which a cat was hoisted on a stage, lowered into, in a sling into a fire, and the spectators uh, shrieked in laughter as the cat, howling in pain, was uh, burned to death. What about one-on-one -on -one murder? Well, there there are good statistics because many uh, municipalities recorded the cause of death, and the uh, uh, criminologist Manuel Eisner scoured all of the historical records across Europe for homicide rates in any village, hamlet, town, county that he could find. And then he supplemented them with national data when nations started keeping statistics. He plotted on a logarithmic scale from uh, a hundred, uh, going from 100 deaths per 100,000 uh, people per year, which was approximately the uh, rate of homicide in the Middle Ages, and the figure plummets down to less than one homicide per 100,000 people per year in uh, se seven or eight European countries. Then there was a slight uptick in the 1960s. The people who said that rock and roll would lead to the decline of moral values actually uh, had a grain of truth to that. But there was a, a decline from at least two orders of magnitude in homicide from the Middle Ages to the present, and the elbow occurred in the uh, early 16th century. Well, let's click down now to the decade scale. Uh, according to non-governmental organizations that keep such statistics, since 1945 in Europe and the Americas, there's been a steep decline in interstate wars, 
in deadly ethnic riots or pogroms, and in military coups, even in South America. Worldwide, there's been a steep decline in deaths in uh, interstate wars. The yellow bars here show the number of deaths per war per year from 1950 to the present. Uh, and as you can see, the death rate goes down from 65,000 deaths per conflict per year in the 1950s to less than 2,000 deaths per conflict per year uh, in this decade, as horrific as it is. Even in the year scale, one can see a decline of violence. Since the end of the Cold War, there have been fewer civil wars, fewer genocides, indeed a 90% reduction since uh, post-World War II highs, and even a reversal of the 1960s uptick in a homicide and violent crime. This is from the FBI uniform uh, crime statistics. You can see that there was a fairly low rate of violence in the 50s and the 60s, then it uh, soared upward for several decades and began a precipitous decline uh, starting in the 1990s so that it went back almost back, back to the level that was last enjoyed in 1960. Uh, President Clinton, if you're here, thank you. So the question is, why are so many people so wrong about something so important? I think there are a number of reasons. One of them is we have better reporting. The Associated Press is a better uh, chronicler of wars over the surface of the earth than 16th century monks were. There's a cognitive illusion. We cognitive psychologists know that the, more, that the easier it is to recall specific instances of something, the higher the probability that you assign to it. Things that we read about in the paper uh, with gory footage burn into memory more than reports of an, a lot more people dying in their beds of old age. There are dynamics in the opinion and advocacy markets. No one ever uh, attracted observers, uh, um, advocates and donors by saying things just seem to be getting better and better. Uh, there's guilt about our treatment of native peoples uh, in modern intellectual life and an unwillingness to acknowledge that there could be anything good about Western culture. And of course, our change in standards can outpace the change in behavior. One of the reasons violence went down is that people got sick of the carnage and cruelty in their time. That's a process that seems to be continuing, but if it outstrips behavior, by the standards of the day, things always look more barbaric than they would have been by historic standards. So today, we get exercised, and rightly so, if a uh, handful of murderers get uh, executed by lethal injection in Texas after a 15-year appeal process. We don't consider that a couple of hundred years ago, uh, they may have been burned at the stake for criticizing the king after a, a trial that lasted 10 minutes, and indeed that would have been repeated over and over again. Uh, today, we look at capital punishment as evidence as of how low our behavior can sink rather than how high our standards have risen. Well, why has violence declined? No one really knows, but uh, I have read four explanations, all of which I think have some grain of plausibility. The first is, maybe Thomas Hobbes got it right. He was the one who said that life in a state of nature was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, not because, he uh, argued, humans have some primordial thirst for blood or uh, aggressive instinct or territorial imperative, but because of the logic of anarchy. 
in a state of anarchy, there's a constant temptation to invade your neighbors preemptively before they invade you. More recently, Thomas Schelling gives the analogy of a homeowner who hears a rustling in the basement. Being a good American, he has a pistol in the nightstand, pulls out his gun, walks down the stairs, and what does he see but a burglar with a gun in his hand? Now, each one of them is thinking, I don't really want to kill that guy, but he's about to kill me. Maybe I had better shoot, before, shoot him before he shoots me, especially since even if he doesn't want to kill me, he's probably worrying right now that I might kill him before he kills me, and so on. Uh, Hunter-gatherer peoples explicitly go through this uh, train of thought and will often raid their neighbors out of fear of being raided first. Now, one way of dealing with this uh, uh, problem is by deterrence. You don't strike first, but you have a publicly announced policy that you will retaliate savagely if you are invaded. The only thing that is that it's likely liable to uh, having its bluff called and therefore can only work if it's uh, credible. Uh, to make it credible, you must avenge all insults and settle all scores, which leads to the uh, cycles of bloody vendetta. Life becomes an episode of The Sopranos. Uh, Hobbes' solution, the Leviathan, was that if authority for the legitimate use of violence was vested in a single democratic agency, uh, a Leviathan, then such a state can reduce the temptation of attack because any kind of aggression will be punished, leaving its profitability uh, as uh, zero. That would remove the temptation to invade preemptively out of fear of them attacking you first. It removes the need for a hair trigger for uh, retaliation to make your deterrent threat credible, and therefore it would lead to a state of peace. Eisner, the man who plotted the homicide rates uh, that, uh, that you failed to see in the earlier slide, uh, argued that the timing of the decline of homicide in Europe uh, coincided with the rise of centralized states. Uh, so that's a bit of a support for the Leviathan theory. Also supporting it is the fact that we today see eruptions of violence in zones of anarchy, in failed states, collapsed empires, frontier regions, mafias, uh, street gangs, and so on. The second explanation is that in many times and places there is a widespread sentiment that life is cheap. In earlier times when uh, suffering and early death were common in one's own life, one has fewer compunctions about inflicting them on, on others. And as technology and economic efficiency make life longer and more pleasant, one puts a higher value on life in general. This was an argument from the political scientist James Payne. A third explanation invokes the concept of a non-zero-sum game and was worked out in the book Non-Zero by the journalist Robert Wright. Wright points out that in certain circumstances, cooperation or nonviolence can benefit both parties in an interaction, such as gains in trade when two, two uh, parties trade their surpluses and both come out ahead or when two parties lay down their arms and split the so-called peace dividend that results in them not having to uh, fight the whole time. Wright argues that technology has increased the number of positive-sum games that humans tend to be uh, embroiled in by allowing the trade of goods, services, and ideas over longer distances and among larger groups of people. The result is that other people become more valuable alive than dead, and violence uh, declines for selfish reasons. As uh, Wright put it, among the many reasons that I think that we should not bomb the Japanese is that they built my minivan. <laughs> 
The fourth explanation is uh, captured in the title of a book called The Expanding Circle by the philosopher Peter Singer, who argues that evolution bequeathed humans with a sense of empathy, uh, a, an ability to treat other people's interests as comparable to one, one's own. Unfortunately, by default, we apply it only to a very narrow circle of friends and family. People outside that circle are treated as subhuman and can be exploited with impunity. But over history, the circle has expanded. Uh, one can see in historical record it expanding from the village to the clan, to the tribe, to the nation, to other races, to both sexes, and in Singer's own argument, something that we should extend to other sentient species. So uh, this, the, the question is, if this has happened, what has powered that expansion? And there are a number of possibilities, such as increasing circles of reciprocity in the sense that Robert Wright argues for. The logic of the golden rule, the more you think about and interact with other people, uh, the more you realize that it is untenable to privilege your uh, interests over theirs, at least not if you want them to listen to you. You can't say that my interests are uh, special compared to yours any more than you can say that the particular spot that I'm standing on is a unique part of the universe because I happen to be standing on it that very uh, minute. It may also be powered by cosmopolitanism, by histories and journalism and memoirs and realistic fiction and travel and literacy, which allows you to project yourself into the lives of other people that formerly you may have treated as subhuman, and also to realize the accidental contingency of your own station in life, the sense that there but for fortune go I. Well, the, whatever its causes, the decline of violence, I think, has profound implications. It should force us to ask not just why is there war, but also why is there peace? Not just what are we doing wrong, but also what have we been doing right? Because we have been doing something right, and it sure would be good to find out what it is. Thank you very much. So I was just going to, I love that talk. Um, I think a lot of people here in the room would say that that expansion of, uh, that you were talking about, that Peter Singer talks about, is also driven by just by technology, by greater visibility of the other, and th the sense that the world is therefore getting smaller. I mean, is that also a grain of truth? Uh, very, very much. I mean, it would fit both in Wright's theory that it allows us to uh, enjoy the benefits of cooperation over larger and larger circles, but also I think it helps us uh, uh, imagine what it's like to be someone else. I think when you read these horrific tortures that were common in the Middle Ages, you think, how could they possibly have done it? How could they have not have empathized with the person that they're, they're disemboweling? But clearly, they, uh, as far as they're concerned, this was just an alien being that does not have feelings akin to their own. Anything, I think, that makes it easier to imagine in trading places with someone else means that it increases your moral consideration to that other person. Well, Steve, I would love every news media owner to hear that talk at some point in the next year. I think it's really important. Thank you so much. My pleasure.